Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Shared Ireland podcast series. Today we'll be having a conversation with a political party's youth group, namely being Ogra Sinn Féin. We've already held two previous podcasts with Ogra Fianna Fáil and Ogra Fine Gael. So in keeping with our policy here in Shared Ireland, we try to be as inclusive as we can and particularly giving our youth uh, a voice as well. And just before we start today, if there is any other youth wings of any political party, please do not hesitate to um, contact us and we'll try our best to have you on. So without further ado, welcome to the Shared Ireland podcast. Kevin, how are you? Oh good, now thanks for having us. So the very prudent listener of the, the Shared Ireland podcast, so looking forward to actually getting on and having a conversation with yourself. So you're a good liar already then? <laughs> so you tell me anyway. I was actually up the stairs before you came listening to Colin Harvey's one, so oh, it was very good. good. But yes, I'm trying my best to keep up to date with it. Very good, that's, yeah. that's very kind of you. Yeah, Professor Colin has been on a couple of times. Kevin, um, we always try and start by asking our guests to tell our listeners a little bit about themselves and in this case, how you got involved with Ogre Sinn Féin. Yeah, well, I joined Sinn Féin when I was 17, uh, just before Martin McInnes had passed away. So, What age are you now, Justin? 22 now. 22. So, so you have five years. Yeah, five, five years within Sinn Féin and uh, a bit of politi- political activism just before that. But I joined when I was 17 and then joined Ogre when I was 18. So it was a wee bit of a different dynamic. Um, dead interesting to meet sort of younger people that were interested in the same things you were and it was a good space to kind of explore your own politics as well which was good so why shouldn't fail why not for example because you're a belfast lad yeah why not the alliance party the sdlp the dup the uup or whatever yeah well i'm a republican so um that's a good start but genuinely if i was to walk out my front door and you were to see people working within the community it would always be the Sinn Féin activists and, and representatives and one of the people I got quite close to with politically and, and personally as well would be Danny Baker. So I don't think there's one person across the 32 that wouldn't say that he's a fantastic community activist. And I think that's probably the same. Um, anywhere you might find Sinn Féin activists and Sinn Féin people that they're inspiring that way, that they can bring communities on board and they can actually genuinely deliver for, for working class people and, and all people within the North and across Ireland. Like I, when I was growing up, the road didn't look the way it looks now. It was probably a lot more battered. It was probably quite run down. And I have got a fantastic, you know, glider system that gets me into the town. And um, the place just looks so much better than it was before. There's more business. There's more community assets. Everything comes along with that. And that's because of strong Sinn Féin representation in this area, I think. Kevin, what's your position within Ogre Sinn Féin? So I am the Cahirlach Nysinde, which in English means the National Chairperson. So... Um, I chair the National Board of, of OGRA, which is the direction that we take the things that we are tasked to do, is setting up new committees, sort of generally setting the political direction of, of where OGRA is going to go and um, what campaigns they're going to take up. And do you have any input from, dare I say, more senior figures within Sinn Féin, or is it totally left up to your national board at a youth level? Well, we have that freedom to, to set that direction ourselves. We would get advice, and if I needed to go and speak to someone within the senior party, then that would, the door would be open for you as such, so there's no disconnect, um, if you like, between Ogre and the senior party. We're very much two sides of the same coin, if you like. Um, but in terms of having that independence, if you like, the one set our own direction, that's something that the party is very comfortable 
with giving us and we actually hold our own conference and things like that to set policy. I suppose you've already touched on but maybe you could just develop that a little bit more. Can you explain the role of Ogre Sinn Féin within the wider Sinn Féin movement? Yeah, so the way the way that we have seen Ogre, particularly over the last number of years, is not only to get young people active within politics, but also to educate not only ourselves, but the wider community as well, and younger people too. So that exists within, of course, colleges and, and universities and um, ITs and everything, but particularly within, within our communities is where we want to be picking people up and um, helping them out and educating them as well on politics, but then also being active and acting on that. So... You know, during the pandemic, we would have been involved in a lot of food banks and um, toy drives and things like that around Christmas or, or egg drives around Easter. But as well then actually getting out in the communities and, and listening to what people need and then feeding that back and seeing what we can do to try and tackle that. So I suppose that if you were to put it in the two words, it would be education and activism is the two main things that Ogre does. What are the main benefits of young people becoming involved in youth wings of political parties given your experience? Yeah, well, I suppose if you look at the energy that, that young people brought to the likes of repeal and marriage equality, particularly in the 26 counties, but also in the six counties as well in terms of campaigning towards that, you just see that young people bring a completely different dynamic to politics. Some people might say we're naive. I say we're quite hopeful and maybe idealistic as well. And that's no bad thing, I don't think, anyway. I like that. Yeah. Naive, no, we're hopeful. We're hopeful, exactly. <laughs> so... I think it brings a different type of energy because there may be people that are slightly older, shall we say, that have been through everything. And why, have, why are you looking at me? <laughs> not at all. Um, that that have seen, you know, that have seen different epochs within Irish history. Whereas, you know, with Ogre, particularly the group that there, that is there and I, we're the first they ever have known peace across the island. So we're the first very true. Good Friday Agreement babies as such. So politics to us is something that's that's very different. Um, but it also as well then you know you, you get to meet people around your own age you get to explore different sort of political directions with them you have those debates we don't really fall out very often um, but we certainly sort of will have that sort of comradely back and forth and, and have those different discussions but even at the RDS you know there was plenty of senior members within the party and senior representatives that had passed comment to say that that Ogre was something different that it was something exciting at the RDS that there was young people getting up and speaking on everything from women's rights to choose to Palestine, the Irish unity and everything in between. So climate control. And climate, exactly, yeah. yeah. So I think for some of the older generations, they maybe look at us and go, OK, we'll feel a bit more confident now. Maybe the future of the party and the movement is in OK hands, I yeah, would think. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, this is leaving aside any party here, but it's good to see our youth because at the end of the day, stating the obvious you are our future yeah. and you know it's the the men and sometimes ladies in grey suits um, you know telling our youth how to do things and what to do and when to do it you know them days have to be put firmly to the back benches I yeah, guess absolutely and listen there's plenty of young people will be able to tell you exactly what they want what they want Ireland to look like you know what they think a better way of doing things is and I think we should listen to young people because you know we are the future as you say but we're also the present too so we are the workers we are people that are students we are out and about in communities so we we live life as much as anybody else does we're not some sort of other away off in the ether somewhere that, that doesn't know what real life is we do of course and we get it so yeah and you have a different perspective for sure uh, um as you alluded to there from people that have you know no through no fault of their own just gotten older yeah and it's good <laughs> to see younger blood coming in to shake things up and to give people a new outlook and perspective yeah, on things. Man. For sure, yeah. definitely. 
Tell me this, uh, Kevin. In recent years, we have seen Sinn Féin rise significantly in the polls. Has this also been mirrored within membership of OGRA, namely in universities and colleges? Yeah, it's actually, it's been, I don't, I don't want to say overwhelming, but nearly there. Um, it's been it's been crazy, to be fair. So on the, the week after the general election in the 26 counties, we had 500 people sign up to join OGRA. Just specifically in the space of a week. So, and did, did you find that membership was it predominantly from uh, twenty six counties or six or a good a good mix to be fair. So even in terms of nationalist psyche within the north, I think a lot a lot of nationalism now looks to Dublin or looks to the twenty six counties for for leadership or for direction, as opposed to looking to Britain. So when that big seismic political change happened in the twenty six counties, where Sinn Féin shot forward to being sort of front and centre within the polls and the election, that that did maybe change a switch in, in some people's heads, particularly in the north, and they went, well, this is actually a national movement here, and change can come if we all put our shoulder to the wheel on it. So it was a good div good division between people from the north and people from the south as well. But And I suppose, as I uh, spoke about in my introduction there, we already had Ogre, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael on yes. um, a year ago, I believe. I suppose you, as in Sinn Féin, are the only all island youth wing, yeah. and I, I know all island party, of course. Mm -hmm. um, what's your thoughts, and would you encourage other political parties, predominantly from the south of Ireland, to come up and you know open branches here? Yeah, well, I suppose if I was being a bit cynical at the start, that you might say to them that you need to get on board with this because this is happening. Like, I genuinely am fully confident in the idea that we will have a United Ireland and that if these parties don't realise that they need to be active and organised within the six counties, then they're going to get left behind. So Fianna Fáil mightn't exist in 20 years' time if they refuse to engage with the six counties, the same with Fine Gael. Although, to be fair to them, um, there is a Fianna Fáil uh, structure in Queen's, for example, although I don't think that... He's very active. Um, Andrew McFadden yes. was or is uh, leading light in that particular movement. And young Fine Gael as well, although I think Leo has said that that counts as an overseas branch, so I don't know if they look at that as a national sort of a national party as such, but yes, you're right in the sense that in terms of being organised across the 32, we would probably be the only youth wing that would be doing that at a sufficient level. Tell me, um, have you found, how have you found any interaction with Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael OGRA members, whether it be through university or just in your day-to-day -day life as chairperson of OGRA, yeah. so I actually, how, how have you found that relationship? And uh, See, I love, I love this. I love going out and meeting new people, particularly if they don't agree with me, because I think it makes it a wee bit more interesting. Um, so I actually did a debate in UCD with Art Domahony, so he's my counterpart within Young Fine Gael, and we got on brilliant, I think. I wouldn't agree with probably 90% of his politics, but we were uh, down there arguing for, it was a debate within the debating society as to whether or not youth wings should exist. So obviously me and him were on the, the same side as such, arguing that they so should be. Whether or what should what exist? Whether or not youth wings should, oh, should okay. exist or should be abolished. So me, me and Art were obviously making the case that... And who was putting up the argument that youth wings shouldn't exist? Um, some people... Or was it a hypothetical? It was a hypothetical right, as such, okay. so it was just a, a debate, but... Myself and Art ended up on the same the same side of that debate, and, and we won. So we worked well as a team um, together and get through from there. But there's plenty within the likes of even Labour Youth, SDLP Youth, um, different groups like that. That are there's there's so many interesting people that you come across, and having those sort of debates with those type of people are, is good. But 
even you know looking at people from Young Fine Gael and O'Griffin of Foyle and Labour Youth that it's very exciting to see that they're starting to click on to this reality that, that this big change is coming this constitutional change is coming and I think genuinely that, that they are interested in, in being part of that conversation and, and taking a leading role in it as they should as well Well I suppose when you can see you know the inevitable happening every day in front of your eyes yeah. um, you either jump on the train or you get left behind <laughs> This is true even given the success of Sinn Féin recently throughout the island, some people think that in the very near future there could be a Sinn Féin Taoiseach and First Minister. What impact would this have on politics throughout the island, do you believe? It's very exciting, isn't it? So it's it's something that... Depend, depends on depend, who you depend ask. Depends on who you ask. But it's something that we've never had before. So... Uh, the 2020 election in the 26 counties broke that political dichotomy that existed. So it was Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil pretending that they were different from each other for 100 years when in reality most people knew that they probably weren't. And in the north as well, you have this constant going around of circles of unionism must be in control and unionism must be the, the dominant body and, and those days are gone. So I have every confidence that if we, we get this right and we... Um, we do things the right way. They're having a, a first minister in the north that, that is from Sinn Féin and having Mary Lou, hopefully, as our Taoiseach in the 26 counties, will be a political change that nobody has seen, probably in the... It, it would be probably one of the most important political changes since the treaty and since partition to have Sinn Féin representatives in the north leading and in the south. And I think in terms of the context of Irish unity, it, it makes things a lot easier. I would have no doubt that a Sinn Féin government would initiate a citizens' assembly on Irish reunification and we would want everybody to, to be part of that but I think even parties like Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil should be, should be looking at that already there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with a, a citizens assembly in, in order to tease these things out but in terms of actual socio-economic change as well I think that will make a, a real difference to people's lives in terms of building the homes that are needed you know giving young people like me an opportunity to actually make a life in Ireland so that the automatic response after you go out of university isn't to jump on a plane and go to London or go to Boston that you can build a life here in Ireland and you can settle in Ireland and you can grow up here and grow old here as well, as opposed to our best asset, I think, is our young people, always being our best export, that we're sending them away at every opportunity. So I would hope that that would be the first in a very long, probably, path to building that new Ireland where we have equality of social justice and you have plenty of opportunities and that equality of opportunity as well. So I suppose to sum up, they answered my question, what impact would this have on politics throughout Ireland? Uh, you'd be very excited. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and I would hope, I'd hope everybody else would be as well, but I'm not, I'm not sure if Jeffrey Donaldson or Doug Beatty might be in the same boat there, but they're, they're very welcome to come and take part. Absolutely. Well, both of them have taken part yeah. in, in our podcast series. Um, so so um, that was reassuring. <laughs> um, tell me this, just want to listen until you speak there. Um, you're clearly very confident, you're very articulate, you, you come across and knowing what you're talking about. And um, do you see a future political career for yourself down the line? So in other parties, I think that's the end goal for some of them. It's just to be an MLA or be a TD or be a councillor. And that's not really me. And I don't think that's really many people within Sinn Féin. I'm in Sinn Féin because I'm a Republican. And I want to make a positive difference within my, within my community. If Sinn Féin or the party was to ask me to do a role in whatever capacity, you know, whether that's behind the scenes or, or publicly, then it would be something to consider. But it's not something that I'm actively chasing after, you know. I think that can be a distraction. That if you're just going to go and be a rep, that you might be doing it for the wrong reasons. So 
what I what I'm about is just making as much as a positive difference to the young people within Ogre, but to my local community as well. And if I can do a good job of that, and, and people are happy with it at the end of the day, then then I'm happy and I'm content. Have you listened to any of her podcasts with young Joel Keys? I have part. I got a good listen to part of it with Andrew from Tanistry. Have so you ever met Joel? I have. Yeah. And what, do you mind sharing with? Our listeners, your brief experience of that meeting with Joel? Yeah, um, it was quite informal to be fair. Um, myself and Joel had been speaking to a, a professor from the University of Queen's University, somewhere in, somewhere in Canada, I can't remember the exact name now, and the, the professor's name was Bridget Brown-Lowe, so she's been involved in sort of peace building and different initiatives here in the North since the Holy Cross um, incident in, in the early 2000s. She's taken a keen interest in politics here. and. Um, she had kind of nearly brought us together, but I had reached out to Joel before once I had seen that he was, you know, somebody that was definitely very interested and opened the discussion. So we sat and we, we had a very good discussion, actually, both with Bridget and, and an ex-Republican, um, POW, um, as well. And me and Joel actually have a lot that we agree on in terms of our politics. Well, you, you know, are of similar age. We are. You live in the same city. It makes sense, wouldn't you, it? You, you want what's best for yourself, your family and your community. Yeah. And, um, you know, what is there really to disagree on? Well, this is true. Now, maybe the constitutional issue may be where we draw the line and we don't agree, and that's fine, because understanding doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything another person says. But the likes of drug reform through decriminalisation, i.e. using that Portuguese model, maybe using some of those experiences here in Ireland, I know that Joel is well up for that discussion and he sees that as something positive. To about the education system needs for to sure. be upgraded. Yeah. I, I, I thought he spoke quite a lot of sense about, you know, what way did he put it is that playgrounds aren't enough anymore, you know, yeah. um, there's enough of them and when you reach secondary school level, you know, there needs to be more things and more activities and more ways to garner young people's interests. And particularly for, for working class Protestant boys. Um, in terms of what can we do within the educational system to make them feel more included and to allow them to achieve the potential that, that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, the trends within working class, maybe loyalist or, or PUL communities, may, some, may be very similar to what you see in Britain with white working class boys where they seem to be left behind as such and there's no real outlet for mm-hmm. for what they want to do in life and that needs to be looked at. You know, It doesn't matter to me whether we have a Union Jack or we have a tricolour. Like education is so so important, and exactly. education allows you that that space and that ability to go and set your own course within life. So it's not for everybody, and, and to me, education isn't just sitting at a desk or sitting at a university. You know, it can mean third level education in terms of apprenticeships, um, further educational colleges to do sort of vocational things as well. But to give people that opportunity, I think, is is something that's so so important within all communities a wee idea just popped into my head here and I'm going to try and make it happen but I need agreement from you and other people that I'm going to mention here what what would you think of the idea of um, the Shared Ireland team hosting a podcast with yourself Joel Keyes Andrew McFadden and people from different Ogre um, youth wings how would you feel about that sounds great but what I would say is we need to get a few more young women in there can't be all you, fellas you took the words yeah. out of my mouth I was about to say that and I'm going to make this appeal now right here right now to anyone listening uh, please folks you know we don't want to be the, the next version of these grey hair men <laughs> in suits that we referred to earlier we need to have our youth involved which we kind of have we need to have people 
that also maybe are now living on the island but maybe weren't originally born here sure. or their parents maybe came from other countries that are now an integral part of Irish society so we need people from all walks and backgrounds and that includes sexual orientation mm -hmm. it, it includes you know um, females males yeah. and everybody so um, if you are listening to this podcast and you are um, as um, what do you call them William Crowley always says on, on Talkback, uh, if you are a first-time caller and you're a female, you'll be put to the top of the queue. Absolutely. So, so please, yes, your, your voice and opinions are always welcome. Kevin, I was talking to a couple of unionist friends within the past couple of days, and they were, were chatting about the Shared Iron podcast, and they, they asked me, who have we coming on next? So I told them, a member of Ogre Sinn Féin. And they asked me to ask you this question. So okay. we'll see how you deal with it. And I'm going to quote them here. Perhaps it's the enthusiasm of youth, but Ogre social media is usually brimming with confidence. Nothing wrong with that. Some would say overconfidence, and that you're already doing a victory lap in terms of unity. How would you respond to that? And secondly, why are you so confident? Well, I would say, first of all, that there's... There, even if we, we did have a United Ireland that, that in terms of celebrations if you want to put it in that context that it wouldn't be ever triumphalist that it wouldn't be something that I'd be interested in going I we've won happy I was, days I was, I was interested in the terms that they used that says that you're already doing a victory lap yeah. and that's how you are perceived potentially within certain quarters within unionism and they're more than welcome to make that, that criticism of us of course but what I would say is that listen there isn't a United Ireland at the minute so we know well what is in front of us and it's hard work and it's a hard slog and it's convincing those people that may not be particularly interested in Irish unity at this moment about convincing them and, and bringing them on site as much as possible and for those people that are genuine that are that are from the unionist community have no interest in Native Ireland then for me it's about accommodating them and making them as comfortable as possible within that new constitutional settlement give me one example of making somebody that isn't for a United Ireland from a unionist tradition or other Tell me how you will make them feel welcome and comfortable for me in a new Ireland. One example would be make the 12th and 13th of July public holidays in the 26 counties already and, and line that, that up. Is that not just tokenism? I wouldn't think so because... Because you have to understand, and I'm sure you do, that not every unionist gives two hoots potentially about no. marching on the 12th. Well, this is true, but what I would say is my analysis would be that a lot of the time unionist fears come from an identity-based place where they feel that there's a loss or there's there's a chipping away of an their identity, erosion. an erosion of, of their identity. And, and that wouldn't be something that I would be interested in within the context of Irish reunification, because I know my history well. I know that, that national-minded people or, or Irish people within the six counties haven't been treated particularly well um, within that, that state, that they're that state, if you want to call it that. So there's no desire within republicanism to, to replicate the past and, or to flip the past or anything like that. So. That would be of no interest to me. And to be completely honest, if somebody did put forward a policy or, or had cooked up a crazy idea somewhere that we should remove the rights of people in the north that are British or we should stop them from parading where there is consent, then I think I would be the first person out in the streets protesting alongside these people. because An it, excellent point. Yeah, for sure. You want to repeat that just? Yeah, so just, is it all right just to go off a wee bit here? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> So what I was saying was that, that if there was a, a movement towards sort of eroding people's identity, a British identity here in the north, and in the 26 counties too, because there's people that are, that are 
have a British identity that, that lives in the 26 counties. If there was any movement towards eroding their identity or their rights or their ability to take part and take a full role within society, then genuinely I think that I would be on the streets protesting alongside them. The reason why I asked you to repeat that, yeah. because for me that is so significant. And the reason why it's significant, because there is this fallacy out there that, you know, as you alluded to there, that if and when the United Ireland does come about, is that Sinn Féin in particular will be seen as the kingmakers in this new Ireland. Yeah. And that they potentially will exert onto their unionist friends and neighbours what unionism put onto them for the past hundred years. So you're clearly now knocking that myth on the head. Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, there's a good quote on the side of a bar in Belfast, um, the Garrick, and it's what a nation with one eye in the past, or with both eyes in the past is blind, but a nation with one eye in the past is wise. And I, and I think that's a really good quote because if we're fixated on the past and just looking to what has been done and we're not looking to the future, then we're going nowhere. So acknowledging our history, acknowledging the, the legacy of, of the past, but then looking towards the future of what we want to build and we want to build something better, new and different, then that's the important part of it there. Kevin, can you understand, as I'm sure you've heard, about Sinn Féin being seen as the boogie men or the boogie party yeah. in this new Ireland? Do you understand people's fears and concerns? And can you now continue to reassure them? Of course. I mean, anecdotally, I worked in a, in a shop in the Belfast city centre for a while and I ended up getting like best friends with a young lad from Bally Sullen who is, was one of the truest, bluest, staunchest loyalists you'll ever meet in your life. Um, and as you do when people join in, you know, join in the new work environment, you want to look at them on social media and try and get a feeling for them. So he had done this to me. So the couple of days before I had joined, he had said, don't put me on shift with him. I don't want to work with him. Um, don't want to be anywhere near him. Is uh, him saying this about you? Yeah, the, the other people in the shop. And he won't mind me saying this story. Mm -hmm. um, but after about a week, after we'd been on one or two shifts together, we were like a house on fire. He couldn't separate us, so I would still go out and meet him for a pint and um, go and play a bit of football and stuff with him. And me and him are very, very good friends now. Excellent. And he's from Loyalist Bally Sullen. I'm from West Belfast, the traditionally Republican community. And we're, we're the best of friends. But just in terms of actually addressing what people might think about Sinn Féin, Legacy is difficult. We have had a very difficult and checkered past here in Ireland. And that's not just within the last 50 years, but within the last maybe 800, you might say. And what we have never had is a national reconciliation process, both after the Civil War in the 26 counties and after the, the Troubles um, in re the six counties. More recent Troubles. Yeah. Exactly, yes. And we've never had that national reconciliation process. So people haven't had the opportunity to air their fears or their concerns or to seek justice in the legacy context. So what's your take on Boris Johnson and the British government's new, well they're unfortunately more now than proposals, to draw a line in the sand in regards to trouble related incidents? Yeah. Well, well Boris Johnson has done probably with the stroke of a pen what Tony Blair struggled to do um, after years of negotiation and that was to unite all the parties in the north around one particular issue. So every single party in this part of the world um, North and South has rejected these outright, rejected these proposals that that is not what we want. What we do have is the Stormont House Agreement that was signed in 2014 and there is mechanisms there available to deal with legacy and those being the agreed mechanisms are the correct way in order to deal with the legacy process. Now they're not perfect, 
our position would be that we should have an international um, truth commission based on the experience of South Africa. And I think that would be the best way to deal with, with legacy. However, we are where we are and you need to realise the political realities that we have those agreed mechanisms and they should be used um, to progress the, the legacy issue and to free it up, free that burden of legacy up for my generation because it's now passed on to the third generation. So you can maybe use Bala Murphy as there's, an example. There's certainly research even into intergenerational um, trauma, yeah. post-traumatic stress disorder. And while people were not even alive, say in your generation, yeah. but they still, as you rightfully pointed out, even still carry that that trauma and that responsibility yeah. nearly on a new generation. Yeah. And I suppose we're all about looking forward and creating and shaping a new island for us all. But there is a train of thought, and it's one that I tend to agree with, is how can we properly as a society move forward until we firmly deal with the past? Yeah, and that's that's so important. And the, the point I was making there is even, you know, use Bala Murphy as an example. There's now young people my age that are the third or fourth generation within that family that are still campaigning for truth and justice or Spring Hill Westrock or some of those ones. So it shouldn't be on my, my generation, the Good Friday Agreement generation, a generation of hope that we have to then carry that burden on from 40, 50, 60 years in the past. So we do need to deal with the legacy and I think that people need to be sensible about it. Um, we probably need to come down a couple of levels from from rhetoric and from from anger and all those sort of things. And we need to look at this logically and we need to be led by victims and families. It's not for politicians to lead this discussion. It's not for political parties to lead this discussion. We some need to be receptive to what the families want. Some of our politicians are victims. Yes. And that's, you know, understandable. And I think, you know, as well as being understandable, it makes it very personal to our politicians, you know. Yeah. And you couldn't fault someone for, for being angry or, or for being upset about a family member being killed. Of course you're going to be. That's that's their own personal human experience. And you can't, nobody could, could fault them for feeling that way or for feeling angry about it. But in a wider societal level, this is something that needs to be tackled. And it is something that needs to be dealt with. And the longer that it's left to, just left to rot as such, then the more difficult it's going to be to try and address it in the future. So I think we need to seriously have a look about what effect that's having on my generation and the generations that may come after me and and get the grips with this legacy issue and have a path for, for truth and for justice for every single family that has suffered during the conflict, during the war here in the north and, and beyond that as well. And including the, the thousands of people that were maimed and injured and yeah. displaced and whatnot. So, and yeah. it's, it's about equality as well because you know even the likes of the, the, the victims pension scheme you know, British British soldiers and it's well documented that um, they've been involved in fairly heinous things in the north you know if they've been injured they're more than entitled to go and take that pension but the over 100,000 nationalists and republicans that had been imprisoned some of them without trial illegally um, they're not entitled to go and get get that pension but another combatant is so there isn't that equality there and that needs to be addressed too and that might seem pretty rough to some people that they don't want to see that that Perhaps ex-combatants from a Republican end would be able to have access to that, but it's important. It's an it's it's an equality. But I think um, you used the perfect word there. It is about equality. Yeah. And to have a level playing field for everyone on that field, sure. Not just a certain few. Yeah. 
Yvonne, what have OGRA Sinn Féin been doing to help open up the conversation surrounding unity to those who maybe might still need a little persuading? And I guess there's more than a few. Yeah, I would say that there's probably a couple of hundred thousand of people that might need persuading, both in the six counties and in the 26. Um, certainly there will be people that you might call shy unionists in the, in the 26, for want of a better term, um, that wouldn't be particularly interested in Irish unity. But I think the important thing that, that Ogre tries to do, and we did a series on this, the likes of our myth-busting series on, on Irish unity about the economics and about the real tangible bread and butter things, I think that's important. So people have an identity, of a, an national identity that is important to them, and that needs to be respected. However, where I think we need to be in terms of having this debate on Irish unity is stripping it back to the bread and butter, the important stuff. So nearly taking our emotions out of it, and that's hard for somebody like me because I, I'm very patriotic, I'm a very proud Republican, but we need to take that away from it to an extent and have that real How does cold. it affect people, for example, in their pockets, in their day-to-day -day life? Exactly. With education, with, with um, healthcare systems. Yeah. yeah. So, for example, I don't want to see a United Ireland where we have that two-tier disastrous healthcare system that they have in the 26 counties. I want to see an Irish NHS. So that great British idea, I think we should steal it and steal it with pride and implement it to the best of our ability, if not better, here in Ireland, because if the Tories turn out apart in Britain, so I can't see it lasting much longer if that trend continues, but we can build that here in Ireland. We can also talk about what jobs are going to look like, so I would say that implementing policies like community wealth building, giving young people like me the opportunity to start their own business, whether through a co-op or things like that, and giving that sort of level of economic freedom is important. Um, but also then that, that wider economic look at things, and, and it maybe wouldn't be my type of economics, but in terms of looking at it sort of raw and, and just the raw data, Dr. Kurt Hubner, of course, is, is very good. Um, his report in 2015 said that, that post-unity a, a United Ireland would be 36.8 billion euros better off, so that maybe needs a wee bit of an update now because Brexit's changed everything. Um, but this is where we need to be, and this is where the conversation needs to go. What's my house going to look like? What's my pocket going to look like? How are my kids going to be educated? Um, and, and what's my life going to look like? That, that's where we need to have, that's where the direction of travel needs to be for this conversation. And the identity issues and everything like that, I actually think are the easier ones to deal with. I, I think, personally, I think it's the, the bread and butter stuff is where we need to get it right. And I won't ask you to speak about flags and emblems just yet. Not yet. Because, well, as you rightfully said, we'll keep it simple. Mm. Because it is simple if we want to make it simple. Yeah. And, and I think at times, you know, we all can get caught up in trying to solve everything in the one go. Yeah. You know, this is a process. Um, there's nothing that has to be rushed about this. And we need to do the homework, do the preparation. Yeah. And, get it right. and it's probably going to be a thing that we revisit every couple of years, even in a post-unity context. I mean, look at the Good Friday Agreement being signed in 1998, we've had, what, five different agreements then after that to look at what way this place should be governed or dealing with specific issues. And no doubt that, that in a post-unity context, we're going to have to revisit these conversations um, again and again. And that's okay, because I'm confident that this new Ireland will be, will be something positive, will be something good, and will benefit all the people in this island. So if we need to spend a wee bit more time sorting out some of the clunkier issues, then that's okay, we can do that. Kevin, you alluded to this briefly earlier there. There's a high level of support for a citizens' assembly to plan, prepare and discuss what exactly unity would look like. Can you explain in as much detail as possible what a new shared Ireland will look like for you and Oakridge and Fane? 
Yeah, well, I would hope that Sinn Féin would be in government um, for a start. So that would be a, that would be a good starting point. But for me, Irish unity also means self determination and independence. But you need to extend that beyond just then the national level. So what does that actually mean for communities on the ground? And and for me, self determination means that these communities can have economic freedom and economic prosperity, so that we don't have the sort of neoliberalism of the of the past and of Tory policies being forced down our throats here in this part of the world, that we can make our own decisions and, and have a better future. So even in the sense that we discussed there about an Irish NHS, that we can make it better, that we can make it more efficient um, and and have it serve the people in a way that, that is, is, is better than the, the British system might be. But also then looking at different styles of governance, you know, we need to be aware of our, our unionist neighbours, their fears that they have here in the north. So you know, one idea that's been bandied about in conversation among Ogre is do we have, for example, in the Shannon, do we have a unionist panel? And that might be something that we can look at. So in terms of a citizens' assembly... Yeah, what is there to actually fear exactly. from having a citizens' assembly? Well, nothing. And if you, if you fear a discussion, it tells me that, that your position is untenable. Um, that if you can't have a conversation on your firmly held, legitimately held beliefs, and you can't put them out to be criticised, then they're not that firmly held and you might be a bit unconfident. In your, in your ideas. Coming from a unionist viewpoint on this, yeah. to enter into a citizens' assembly, does it solely have to be based around Irish unity? Or can they, from your point of view, come in and sell the benefits of the union? Yes, absolutely. Come in and sell the benefits of the union, but I would say I don't think there are many. Um, no, no <laughs> but, but I suppose my point is this is, that certain unionists say if they do agree to join a citizens' assembly yeah. or participate in it, it will be them capitulating and saying, okay, unity is inevitable. So my point here is if we could get people from all walks of life to come in and have a conversation, it doesn't just have to be about one subject. I suppose that's where I'm going with that, this. This is a blank page. So if you want to discuss about how Belfast or Newry or Derry is better off in the context of the United Kingdom, do it. Make that argument. And this is the point where we need to get to. We've seen how da damaging Brexit is. So people voted on a women of prayer and they didn't know what they were voting for. I think that's a fair comment to make. We don't want Irish reunification to be like, to be like that. So, so you're basically saying there, there can be no preconceived outcomes before no, a conversation? Th that's what a conversation is about. It's about nearly like a journey of, of two people maybe with opposing ideas walking down a path together and having a conversation about something and, if possible, landing at an amicable and an agreed outcome. But if that's not the case, that's okay because conversation for conversation's sake isn't a bad thing, you know, it, it can be a positive thing. Like, so, like you and your guy from your workspace? Yes, absolutely. Um, you'll, you'll find mutual common ground. And we've got so much more common ground than than we don't, so there's a lot, we have a lot more in common. All the people on this island, or these islands, should I say, even in Britain as well, um, we have a lot more in common than, than people think, so they kind of discount that from the start and they rubbish that at the start and say, well, oh no, we've capitulated here because we're talking about Irish unity and we're, we're maybe considering it that doesn't that's not a capitulation that's not a that's not a surrender to use that term so get involved in the conversation tell me why the union is better i go into this with an open mind if you can convince me that the north or northern ireland or whatever term that you prefer to use is better within the united kingdom let's have that conversation but i am very sure from all the research that i've done and everything that i've looked into 
that Irish unity just makes sense. It makes sense on so many different levels. And unionism might feel the same about the UK, but we need to have that discussion and we need to have that debate because nothing's certain um, and nothing's just a given. So it's about having that, that conversation as such. That's actually one of our hashtags that we've been using from day one, join the conversation. Absolutely. So on that note, folks, join the conversation. You heard it. Yeah, heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, well... Keeping Ogre Sinn Féin celebrates its 25th year this year, if I'm not mistaken. What do you think has been its most notable successes in that time? Now, I appreciate you are 22, yeah. <laughs> but from your research and what do you think? Well, Maria Farrell, um, she's a Sinn Féin TD for, for Galway West. Um, she always has a good sort of anecdote, and I think it just... It, it just de- describes Ogre perfectly. And she says that if her car breaks down in any county in Ireland, that she'll have somebody that she can ring to come and give her a hand. And that just encapsulates what Ogre is all about perfectly. But in terms of, if I was to point out one success over a 25-year period, I'd be here all night. And uh, I'm not saying that being overconfident, so I hope that's not taken the wrong way. <laughs> Who would ever accuse no, you of that? No, absolutely not. So... Um, but even, you know, you look at the, the founders of Ogre, Owen O'Brien, Matt Carthy, um, Pierce Dockery, and then you have that sort of different generation in the sort of late 2000s, um, that you have the likes of Maria Farrell, um, Megan Fearon, all these different brilliant activists that have now progressed through to the senior party and, and are playing a full and key role in that. And not all those people are public reps. Some of those people are working within the infrastructure of the party and the movement and everything like that. So I think that demonstrates just how effective Ogre is that that those ogre activists of the past are now the Sinn Féin leaders of the present, that they've progressed through those structures and are able to play a full role within the movement. But um, even in my tender as, as chairperson of the of the organisation, the, the general election in, in 2020 probably stands out as one of the high points where we had kind of taken a, taken a run at it and just said, we're going to give this everything we have. I think quite silly, like stupidly, I had said at the start that we can win this election when nobody thought we, that Sinn Féin could win that election. Well, if you um, had to put up more TDs, it might be one. I know, I know. Um, but we had that confidence going into it that we're saying that we're going to put our case to the people and if, if they if they take it on board, then happy days. And, and they did. So it was it was very, very good. And, you know, there was nights where I was looking at, at different parts of the country and there might have been 40 people in Galway out canvassing for Maria or 50 people in Dublin. And I was up and down all across the country during that time. Um, and it was great. And... It just brought us all a lot closer together and of course we got a result out of it listen we broke the political dichotomy in ireland and we will continue we'll hopefully continue down that path and have mary lewis taoiseach although we're not doing um, a victory lap just yet are you excited about the upcoming assembly elections here in the north yeah very excited i think that the party's got a good slate of candidates um going forward particularly some younger candidates um i think the likes of you know, Iceling Rayleigh, um, Danny Baker um, in this area, and even a wee bit further afield, you've got the likes of Liz Kimmins, um, uh, you've got Keeve Archibald up in East Derry, so um, that's not discounting some of the older the older candidates, they're all great, but it's it's exciting because it's a change and it's something fresh, and, and to have that have that goal that, that this, and this could be Sinn Féin as First Minister, this could be Michelle O'Neill taking up that brief, not that it changes anything in terms of the actual implementation of... And plus the roles are joint. They are, they're joint. And to be honest, it makes no bones to me. If you want to call it joint first minister, call it joint first minister. If that is going to stop Jeffrey Donaldson from um, cracking up, then so be it. Um, but yeah, listen, these are joint roles. But to have that for the first time ever in the North, a state that was designed to 
perpetually lock out the the sort of the the minority um that they have that big change i think is a is a big historical uh change in itself um and it's something that that, that we are very motivated in terms of of moving towards but I, I know you don't have a crystal ball yeah but um try my best <laughs> how confident are you that um Sinn will become the title of first minister here after April this year. Well, we'll find out. Or May, <laughs> we'll, or May is it? We'll find out. May? We'll find out in May. But I think where maybe the difference lies between unionism and I say unionism, but political unionism and and Sinn Fein particularly is that it's getting that role for the sake of getting that role. To have first minister on your door or your desk, and I know that's not the case even for Michelle or for the party. For us to get into that that position of leadership, again, doesn't really change anything in terms of the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement or the way that the institutions work. But what it means is that we can now press on to make more positive differences within communities. Deirdre Hargy has a plan where she's to build 100,000 uh, social and affordable homes over the next 15 years. What a difference that will make to people's lives. Would it also send out a very clear message that if Michelle O'Neill did become First Minister to the British Secretary of State, that momentum is now tangible here and the need for a date on a referendum for constitutional change isn't something that he or she can keep on the back burner for much longer. Well, look at the wording of the Good Friday Agreement and it is, to be fair, constructively ambiguous and at that time it was, it was it needed to be. But if it appears likely, then the Secretary of State is, is bound has the call that that referendum if that, it appears likely and that's the only reason why i asked you that yeah. question because what more tangible evidence would one need i don't know how you can argue that it does not appear likely that the majority of people in the north could vote for irish unification when you have the republican party when you have Sinn Féin as the first minister and you also have people with an alliance that may be more pro-european that are now looking to see what union they want to be part the of sdlp and then the exactly um, yeah, looking and talking yeah. about a future. And people are up for having this conversation. And that's, for, for many people it is, what union do you want to be part of? Do you want to be part of the United Kingdom? Which seems to be going a very certain way. I don't think there's many people in the North that, that would be happy with Boris Johnson and his performances, if you can put it in that context. But it'd, be, it'd be a good interior decorator. But Apparently so, although he was paying people to do that for him, so I don't know if he's got much style himself. And to be fair, when I seen his living room or whatever it was on the news, I went, he paid 30000 for that. He's serious. <laughs> I think you weren't the only one that yeah. said that. Um, but, 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 but genuinely, it's, it's people are now asking that question, what union do you want to be part of? Do you want to be part of a United Ireland and the European Union? Um, or do you want to be part of Brexit Britain? Um, and for me, that's an easy, an easy answer. Last week, we seen Baroness Hoey. She made headlines by saying that nationalist activists in the fields of law, journalism and public services were using their roles to exert influence to those in power. Given the role of Ogre Sinn Féin as an outlet for many young Republicans and nationalists, what has been the response from your peers to that statement, Phoenix? Well, Baroness Hoey, I think, despite having grown up here and being born here, has no real role to play in our politics. She was a MP for Vauxhall for a couple of decades, <clears throat> and she's also a Lord in the, the House of Lords. So I don't think she's very connected to the ongoings on the ground here in Ireland. Um, but probably part of it was, what is this person talking about? They're, we don't have this sort of secret hidden away group chat where it's, 
all these high-profile nationalists are doing their best to undermine the union within their respective professions. But I, it just again, it comes from this. It, it's it's unionism 101 or political unionism 101, where it's the Republican bogeyman is out to get you. And if there's a if there's a nationalist or a Republican about the place, then you might be in danger or there might be a threat to the, the union or, or to our security here. And, and that's not the case. So I don't know where this idea came from, but the suggestion in, in, in its essence is that people like maybe Colin Harvey or, or different nationalist journalists, if you can call them that, um, don't have a role to play just because of the community that they've grown up in or the background that they have. So again, it points to the difference between what I would see as my republicanism being in the in the vein of maybe a Wolf Tone where it's the United Protestant Catholic in the centre and to bring people together. Or you can choose that unionism where it's about exclusion and it's about dominance and it's about well we need to be on top or else we're we're not we're not confident and we're not happy. Whereas I don't think I'm better than anybody else, don't think I'm worse than anybody else. It's it's Republicanism, Republicanism in essence for me is about equality and obviously with comments like that and you have both leaders of unionism Doug Beatty and, and Jeffrey Donaldson retweeting it and, and welcoming the comments tells me that you may be able to present yourself as more liberal and more inclusive but if and if that's your attitude that, that you're having towards people that have worked hard and done well for themselves then how can you how can you say that, that you're in any way sort of inclusive you know you mentioned Doug Beatty and um, Jeffrey Donaldson retweeting it. Yeah. Could that potentially be an our crocodile moment for unionism leading up to the assembly elections? I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I suppose we'll find out. I haven't got that, that crystal ball as such, but I, I don't understand this at all. If I seen Joel Keyes doing well for himself and he got a good job where he had graduated from uni, I'd send him a text and I'd be like, Joel, well done. Delighted for you. Um... I wouldn't be going, is he infiltrating my, my business or is he infiltrating my work to try and ensure that the union will, will perpetually stay? Like, where does this nearly paranoia come from? Because it wouldn't enter my head for, for even one second. I think for me, potentially, and I always try to at least attempt to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Yeah. It's maybe a word that we used earlier on the podcast when people maybe potentially see the erosion, what they deem to be, there maybe their equality, their rights and yeah. their heritage. But as I'd like to think you very eloquently demonstrated throughout this conversation, is that that's not how you see no. anyone's future moving forward. And it, it comes from a, you know, it's a good quote from Martin McGuinness, and he's somebody that I've always looked up to because he presented that confident republicanism where you were afraid of nothing and, and up for anything, you know, up for any conversation. And like I am genuinely so confident in my Irishness and my identity that I have no desire whatsoever to chip away at the Britishness of anybody else but it seems to me that those people particularly within political unionism to be fair um, that are, they're not confident in their identity they're, they're unsure of themselves and, and that then means to, to kind of bring them up another level level, level or two that they have to push other people down just to feel like they're on top that's not for me. Nobody can take my Irishness away from me. Nobody can stop me from, from being a Republican. Only I can do that. And I think unionism needs to start thinking in the same way. Nobody's going to stop you being a unionist. Nobody's going to take your British identity away from you. And you need to need to just relax, I suppose, is to put it in one word. Leaving in our podcast with Doug Beatty back in 2019, the now UUP leader said, and I quote, I can't trust Sinn Féin doesn't matter what they say, 
they simply can't trust him. What would you say to people like Doug who see Sinn Féin as a reason to oppose unity? I would say to Doug that he's been in government with Sinn Féin for the guts of 20 years now, so... <laughs> We've 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 ran part of a country together, so I don't know I don't know where this has came from. Um, so so Doug would maybe need to reconsider. Is is uh, I know they were in opposition for a while, but Doug, Doug would need to re- maybe reconsider his political direction then because he sat in the executive with Sinn Féin for just over two decades, near enough. So um, I don't know where that's came from. But listen, trust is something that's built. It's trust isn't given away for free. Um, and I think through our actions within the political institutions and within wider society that listen, I can't make someone trust me, I can't force them to, to trust me, but But your actions can. But to the best of our ability with, within republicanism, I think that always Sinn Fein has tried to be fair, has tried to be even handed, has always searched for equality in whatever way um we can we can deliver that. So again, comments like that always just scream I'm not confident in myself. That, that you can't just nearly let that wee bit of yourself go and go, do you know what, I will put a wee bit of trust in my political partner here um, and we will try to make this work and um, we're going to try for something different. So I don't know if that's a case of maybe Doug beating the, the drum in advance of an election. Um, I would hope that wouldn't be the case, but yeah, there's nothing to be afraid of, of, of shinners. We're not, we don't have horns. We're not, we're not bogeymen. Well, apart from the shinner bots. Yeah, apart from where, wherever this ideas came from as well. And to be fair, I get more people that maybe are proof in a gale or proof in a foil on my account that are bots um, cracking up at me. So, yeah, if, if you believe the media... You as, as national chairperson of Ogre Keeping, please try and eradicate these I, shinner bots, will you? I don't know where it's came from. You would think that there were, there was uh, there was like rows of computers in the basement of 44 Parnell Square <laughs> West in Dublin. I can tell you the basement's not that interesting. In fairness, now I have seen a, an old laptop lying on the back of your yard. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been for uni, so you don't want to don't want to be giving people too much of an excuse here. Um, but seriously, I, I don't know where it's came from, and, and listen, comments like that from Doug aren't helpful. Um, oh no, think, I'm not yeah. saying Doug has. Said no, no, not about the shower bots. <laughs> even going back to the, the original point there, but you know, comments like that aren't helpful. Um, we need to trust each other, and listen, we're the good very agreement demands mandatory coalition, so. You need to trust. We need to trust each other, whether we like it or not. Even we're fifty-four minutes in here, and I genuinely cannot believe for the past fifty-four minutes <laughs> went. So, just the last more meaty question I have for you: Ogre Sinn Féin have been very vocal about the Palestinian cause on social media. What more can be done? And also, what do you think a Sinn Féin-led government could do in this area to highlight it at a more international level? Yeah, so I had the, the pleasure, I suppose, of speaking to a number of young Palestinians, some from um, the West Bank, some from Gaza, and some living in uh, East Jerusalem. And I had asked them the same question, you know, what, what is it that we can do for you here in Ireland? And they'd sort of put three things forward, that we need to support the BDS campaign, which is the boycott, divestments and sanctions movement against the Israeli state, um, that we need to amplify Palestinian voices in terms of giving them the space to talk about their own experiences. I and mean, we need to always, always stand in solidarity for them, whether that's bringing attention to it through a protest or through a banner or talking about it on podcasts like this. That was the three things that those Palestinian people had And was had that solidarity for. from the nationalist, more Republican community, potentially? Yeah. Does that come from our experience, do you believe? Well, partially, because in conversation with these Palestinians, the point that I was making to them is that there may be people of a certain age within the Republican community that can remember being stopped and searched or, or beaten by British soldiers or threatened with a gun. 
that it's very similar for, for those young Palestinians over there. And I think that having that shared experience can bring people together and can extend that, that solidarity just as much as we show solidarity towards Palestine, even with, within the context in which they find themselves, the dire straits, the very difficult political situation and the very difficult socioeconomic situation, that yet they still show solidarity to Ireland. We'll still put up um, our national flag in places. They'll still say, well, Ireland has, has looked out for us. Um, but in terms of, so those are the three things in terms of what an individual can do. Just repeat them three things again, please. Was to support the BDS movement, boycott divestments and sanctions against Israel. <clears throat> was to um, amplify Palestinian voices where we can, whether that be on social media or through podcasts or, or documentaries, whatever that may be. And they always send and extend their, our, our solidarity towards the, the Palestinian people. But on a policy level, um, what I think was very, very important and was a seminal moment probably within the, the Palestinian campaign in Ireland was that the Irish government had recognised and agreed and voted in favour of a motion that said that the Israeli state is annexing Palestinian land in the West Bank. And that then should be the, the moment where we kick on and we implement the Occupied Territories Bill, which just doesn't target you know, the West Bank and Gaza. It's any occupied territory in the world. So you might be then talking about Western Sahara or, or different places like that, but we need to seriously kick on here, um, and we need to make sure that nowhere in Ireland you can buy a product that, that is that is built or made under apartheid. And that's that's listen, that's what it is in Palestine. It is apartheid, um, and there's been plenty of uh, South African um, commentators and, and political activists that would have described it as such. Um, however, Sinn Féin and government, I think, in terms of our international outlook, um, the first thing that we should do is recognise the Palestinian state. Um, and recognise it for what it is and give it that um, uh, international recognition um, and I would also hope that we could open either open dialogue or if that's not wanted that we would begin to bring sanctions against the Israeli state for, for their crimes against humanity and because it's been held up so much um, within the current sort of the current Doyle and the current Shannad that we would bring forward and implement Francis Black's Occupied Territories Bill. You took the um, words out of my mouth, I was about to say, Senator Francis Black yeah. is doing tremendous work around this whole issue. She is, and, and we need to have that bill implemented because that's Ireland on the world stage has a lot of soft power. So we're not a big military country. We don't have massive military might like maybe the US. I reckon we're the best trained army in the world because that's all we do is train. Yeah, well, that's it. Um, but we don't have that. But what we do have is a lot of soft power, and, and because of what we've experienced in our own in our own history, um, that different countries do look to Ireland for answers, and we have that sort of that national tradition of neutrality in terms of um, in terms of military operations. But we also have. I think within the international sphere, a lot of people recognise that, that Ireland can be a country that can, one, be involved in peacekeeping. You know, different countries invite the defence forces in um, to, to, to keep the peace. But also people look to Ireland for a to be a bastion of human rights, to identify where things are going wrong within the world. And most of the time you can rely on Ireland to call it out and point it out. And the Irish people in particular will, will jump at, at injustice and they'll jump at inequality and they'll campaign against it. So that's where our soft power lies, whether that's leveraging people in America or in China or in Europe, um, that we can sort of bring an amicable conclusion and a positive conclusion to some of the, the world's big issues. Um, and I think Ireland is the, is, the, is the nation to do that. And we should be utilising more our, our seat on the Security Council, for example, to be highlighting these issues. And I think that has been underutilised um, by the government at this particular juncture, but I would hope that they would, they would use that um, 
they would use that a lot more and use it in a more beneficial way instead of just utilizing it the 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 pander to different sort of nations across the world that we do stand up on our own two feet and if there's injustice and inequality then then Ireland would be the nation to call it out. You mean at near enough exactly one hour in? You'd think we planned that. You would nearly <laughs> think we planned it. Paint me your picture of Ireland in 20 years time. Very profound question that. Um, but Ireland in 20 years time I think would be I suppose what I would like to see would be a society that is one based on equality that's based on true equality that we all have the same opportunities but then we also have the support where people don't start at the same level the, the sort of level the playing field as such if that makes sense um, I would like to see an Ireland where I can get on a train from Belfast to Cork and be there in two hours rather than or try taking a, a train from Belfast to Tyrone I know I know absolutely and listen or Fermanagh Developing this out, having high speed rail, having a good Irish NHS, um, having a strong economy, but not an economy that serves multinational corporations, an economy that genuinely serves normal people. Um, that we have, that we have, and where youth can rent and get a mortgage. Yeah, because I don't want to be paying a thousand euro a month if I want to go and live in Dublin. You know, because that's that's exclusionary. Even a thousand. I know that's exclusionary with, within itself. And actually, one friend of mine has moved now from Dublin, because he's working from home, Dublin to Belfast, and before he even gets out of bed in the morning, he's already saved £800 a month, just on the difference in rents. But yeah. that, I suppose in a more general sense, listen, I'm a Republican, I want to see an Ireland that's based on the proclamation of 1916, and an Ireland that is that lives out the, the democratic programme of Enkid Dáil, um, which that might sound scary to some unionists, that it's, that it's going to be this mad Republican state, but it's not, because those things are very... Um, they're very, they're very inclusive, and you know, even in the democratic program, it was about everybody having a roof over their head, every child having the right to a decent and a fair education, um, that there would be food on the table, and that there would be work for all. Um, now they may seem idealistic to some people, but I think that those are things that you can actually implement. They're basic things that all societies across the world, regardless yeah. of of where they may be, should be yeah. fundamental civil rights for everybody. Absolutely, and I don't think that that should seem or would seem particularly scary to my unionist neighbours here in the north, but because even working class loyalist communities, you know, they're going through the same objective poverty um, that people in nationalist communities are going through. So there's not much of a difference there. So what we need to go and, and realise together is that what's happening now isn't working. It's not working in Cork or in Dublin or in Galway, and it's not working in Derry or in Belfast or in Tyrone or in Fermanagh. And we need to have a new, a new departure, a new, a new path for us to go on together, so that we can build a better future for everyone. Tell our listeners the best piece of advice you've ever been given. Um, best piece of advice I've ever been given. Or make one up. <laughs> I might have to. The best piece of advice I've ever been given. Mary Lou at the RDS, um, actually uh, myself and the last Carlock of Ogre Karen have been up to get a few photos of Mary Lou um, and she can be a commanding presence sometimes um, but it probably doesn't seem like the most profound advice but what she said this was just keep on keeping on, just land her eye, just keep pushing forward and I think that's very simple but important. And, and you can actually take that and apply it to anything outside the political context yeah, as well. absolutely. What is it once again? Keep on keeping on. There you go. This is what she told us. I wasn't going to attempt to say it because I can get a slightly tongue twister. <laughs> Why should someone join 
Ogre Sinn Féin and I suppose Sinn Féin in general moving and how can they go about it? Well I would hope that if you are listening and you're a United Irelander or not um, that you would join Ogre to better your community to make a positive difference not only to young people but to Is there an age limit? There is, unfortunately, which is 26. Right. So we can make a constitutional exception for you if that's what you're asking. <laughs> no, but maybe I'm not. not. <laughs> I'm not asking that, definitely not. Uh, I think it might just be a wee bit, a wee, just a couple of years over it, uh, just at the minute. But yes, if you want to make a genuine concerted effort to, to better your community, to build towards Irish unity, um, to get involved in that campaign for a new, free, and united Ireland, that's why you should join Sinn Fein, and that's why you should join Ogre. And if I you want to do that. You can um, get in contact on our social media. So we're on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter, as many people will know. Um, our Twitter is probably our most popular. And it's at Ogre underscore SF. Or you can join at shimfian.ie forward slash join. Okay. One more answer, please. Okay. Water or alcohol? Alcohol. <laughs> Don't even need to think twice, sir. You had that answer before. Yeah, I was asking the question. Best film? Oh, Back to the Future. Why? Um, first time I watched it with my dad and I wasn't too sure of it at the start. It's like I don't like these sci-fi films and I watched it and then I watched the trilogy and I was hooked. Favourite sport? Soccer. One yeah. item that will always be in your fridge no matter what? Do you know what? A packet of Bernard Matthews chicken. It's <laughs> unbelievable, I swear. <laughs> They're the best, the best snack. It's better than um, Andrew Clark's. His was a fine selection of cheeses. Oh, right, okay. It's a bit bourgeois, that, I isn't it? Not social under that. No. Uh, or socialist, even. Invite three people to your fictional dinner party, please, Keeling, um, that um, either dead or alive, and why? Yeah, um... That is a difficult one. Three is probably two. I, I would want to have a dinner party of about 15 or 20, but I'll do three. We'll do three. So definitely Mark McInnes. Um, Why? One interesting character and the stories he could tell you, you would be on the edge of your seat for the rest of the night. And actually, Jonathan Paul, um, Tony Blair's former um, right-hand man, said that you would invite Jerry and Martin to dinner because it would be the best crack. So I'll take his advice on that and I'll, I'll bring Mark McInnes. Okay. Another one would probably be Jack Steen. So he's a former Celtic manager. Um yeah, he was. Uh, he took, you know, a group of twelve lads from thirty miles around Celtic Park and brought them to the final of the European Cup. So and he won it. Um, so I bring him as well. Uh, he's a, a great sort of motivator. He was somebody that was able to get his message across to people to get them to buy in what he wanted. So I think he could learn a lot from him. Um, and I think he did great. He would have great stories to tell about uh, about the the journey to Lisbon and back so that would be another one for me as a good Celtic fan um, and the third one would be now it's probably more of a difficult one because um, there's probably a few you could put in there but I, I don't want to keep it too domestic either you know I don't want to be shoehorning myself into just Ireland but I suppose I went to Scotland there so um, probably the third one I would have in then would be probably I would take I think I think Mary Lou might make a fancier dinner than Michelle, so I hope she doesn't shout at me for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> why, then, why? Why but, would you say that? But them them dubs seem to love their the finer things in life, so um, Mary Lou might be able to help me with the with the cooking because um, I'm useless. So we might, we might actually have to get Martin to do that. I know Jerry and his. You, you could be demoted if Michelle hears you popping down her cooker. I know. Uh, skills. Absolutely. I'm sure she's great, and I'm not despising that. But um, just them dubs, the likes of Owen O'Brien and uh, Lynn Boylan, they seem to love the the finer things in life when it comes to the kitchen. <laughs> so I'll go for that. I might even might even say Lynn as well. She makes a, a mean dessert. I'm led to believe. So okay. maybe Lynn Boylan too. Very interesting yeah. indeed, I must say. 
Well, um, evening of chairperson of OGRA, Sinn Féin. It's been an absolute honour speaking to you. I thoroughly enjoyed the past one hour and eight minutes. Um, I personally found it very interesting, as Thank I do with all our guests, and I know our listeners will definitely have a lot to think about. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, yeah, hopefully. Um, I'll leave you the last word. If there's anything you would like to add. Um, I suppose just Lanarai, keep going forward, no matter what industry that you're in, or no matter what you do in your life, um, just always try and be happy and, and push on and do the, be the best that you can be. Shanae. Okay, folks, thanks once again for listening. And as usual, if you um, did like what you heard, and even if you didn't like what you heard, don't be afraid to leave a comment in the thread underneath. And if you will um, forgive me, I'm just going to bring your attention. You will also notice in the thread underneath we have started our GoFundMe page um, and I suppose any contribution will be appreciated as it will help us grow and build as we move forward. Take care folks, until the next time, be good, bye bye.